If this is your first Sunday here, we're delighted uh, to have you here as our guest. I'm Randy. I'm serve, I serve as the senior minister here at the church, and we're in a series uh, of Advent where we're preparing for Christmas uh, Day, and we have been looking at John's Gospel, Chapter 1, uh, for our messages on Advent, and we're going to look there in just a moment, but first... I want to tell you about the movie that I saw with my older son not long ago. Uh, I have two sons. My older son is the police officer type. And so, uh, he, well, because he is a police officer, that's, that that's, makes him the police officer type. And so, anyway. Um, but we went to go see a movie because the movie featured his favorite actor his you know Ben's favorite actor is Denzel Washington yes I mean Ben says that Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time period in fact he listens to this podcast that's called Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all times period <laughs> have, have you heard it has anybody heard that podcast well Ben just eats it up he's he's he he we were on our way to, to the movie, and he, and he said, Dad, I was actually featured on that podcast. I said, really? He said, I, I had a question that I wanted to ask, and, and so they called my name out and everything, and I said, well, sweetheart, I'm so proud of you. You just did such a great, I'm so proud of you, son. Good, good, good job. But uh, so we went to go see this movie that Denzel was in, and maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's a Western, uh, The Magnificent Seven, Justice has a number. That's what it's subtitled, The Magnificent Seven. And there's a lot of gunfire in it, and uh, basically the plot is that some bad guys have taken over a town, and someone from the town leaves the town to go find Denzel Washington. And so they plead with Denzel Washington to come and help and rescue this town from evil doers. And Denzel Washington says, no. Because in Westerns, the hero always says no first, right? And then he changes his mind and says yes. And he uh, gathers um, like a gang of helpers. How many were there? Oh, seven. <laughs> and um, they go back into town and they take care of business. I mean, they were really thorough and they were really good. They were magnificent is what they were and so they uh, 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 take care of all the bad guys and that's the movie that's it that was the magnificent seven and now you have can say you've pretty much seen the movie um and uh my son loved it because you know denzel washington was in it and he is the greatest actor of all times period and what did i think of the movie it was fine i mean it's a western Right? And, um, you know, it was like 310 to Yuma, and it was like Unforgiven, and it was like uh, Jeremiah Johnson, and it was like um, High Noon, all going all the way back to Gary Cooper. Seriously, American Westerns, they're all the same. They really are. They're all the same. Um, and here's what I mean the hero always appears from out of town. That's it. You see a movie, and the hero comes in from out of town, you can say, that's a Western. Because the hero always appears from out of town. Even 
when the hero lives in town, the hero's got to leave town and then come back to town. That's how it works. I'm serious. You know, it, it, made, it made me wonder if those uh, Hollywood film writers read more of their Bible than I give them credit for. Seriously. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to our Advent Scripture today. Uh, and John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. You'll find that on page 886 of your church Bibles. And this is exactly how John chapter 1 describes Christmas, the God who is, who was, and is to come, our eternal God, came to us from the outside. You see? John 1.14, we heard. And the Word, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything made that was made. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hello from the outside. The hero of our gospel has come from outside town. Maybe those film writers do read their Bibles. Or maybe, maybe our need for help outside ourselves is somehow embedded deeply within the human soul. And we may not like to admit it because we're either too proud or too stubborn or too angry. We don't like to admit it, but we need help. We cannot fix the brokenness of our world by ourselves. It's just not going to happen or it already would have happened. But God has come from the outside to do what we cannot do. Christmas is God's gift of help. And so what I want us to see specifically as we pay attention to verse 14 this morning is, is just what Christmas is. And here it is. The gift of Christmas is that God came to us in the flesh so that we who are flesh might belong to him. That's, that's the message of Christmas, that God entered our world from his world. God who was outside town came to town. He put on skin so that we who are skin might become like him and we might reflect his image the way he always intended us to. What I'm saying is this, God came to us so that we might belong to him. God came to us so that we might belong to him. That's what we're reading here in John 1.14. And that's the message of Advent and Christmas. And so I would just like to walk through uh, phrase by phrase verse 14 so that we can see that God came to us 
that we might belong to him. And, and before I do that, let me just tell you why this really matters. This is so important. Listen, John 1.14 answers the question, is there more? Is there more? John 1.14 answers that question. Uh, several years ago, 60 Minutes interviewed uh, the New England Patriots' Tom Brady. Very interesting interview in which uh, uh, they had a conversation with him, and this is what he said. This is what he said. He said, I've, you know, why is it that I have three Super Bowl rings and yet have this sneaking suspicion that there must be more to life. And 60 Minutes said, well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady said, I have no idea. Oh my. Well, we have an idea, and it's more than an idea. It is the Word become flesh and dwelt among us. It's the answer to the question, is there more? And so let's just walk through verse 14, phrase by phrase, beginning with, and the Word. It's very intentional that the Apostle John states the Word. You know, he could have said, and the thought became flesh, or, and the feeling became flesh, or, and the deed became flesh, but but thoughts and feelings and deeds, I mean, these can be misunderstood. But words are self-expressions. Words exist for the sake of communication and connection. And your word is the overflow of your heart. And God's word expresses God's heart. And what's on God's heart is his desire for community. God wants community. God, who is three persons in one being. God, who is a triune community of love and joy and laughter, created us to share his love and to connect. And in John 1, our triune God is creating a new beginning. So it's no accident that John's gospel would start with the phrase, in the beginning. You know that's echoing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. And if you read the poetic structure of Genesis chapter 1, you'll see the phrase repeated over and over, and God said, and God said. And then as you flip through the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures You'll come upon Psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth what? Speech. Not thoughts, not feelings. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. And then when you keep flipping through the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you'll, you'll read this phrase when you get to the prophets. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Elijah or the prophet Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah. In other words, there's something definitive and authoritative about God's self-expression. And his word is eternal. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God's word is definitive, it's authoritative, it's eternal, it is his self-expression, it is clear. When God speaks, he doesn't mumble. And John says that this word that has always existed, this word that created worlds, this word which prophets proclaimed, has at last the final and ultimate expression of who God is. This word became flesh. And the word didn't appear to be flesh. The word didn't seem to be flesh. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. Let's talk about that word flesh for just a moment. What you need to understand, you know, church family, we, we come to this text as Americans in the 21st century. The Apostle John wrote this in the first century and we're pretty sure that he wrote this to Christian community. Um, the first audience was actually in Ephesus, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey. And you can actually go to Ephesus today and walk on the first-century pavement. It's magnificent. And there's a Christian community in Ephesus consisting of both uh, believers who were of Hebrew ethnicity who would have really identified with what I've just been explaining about the Word. And then there was a non-Hebrew or a Greek or a Gentile community. And when they would have heard John say the Word become flesh, you see that the, the Word is the Greek word logos. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek. The logos, the very logic of God. And then to hear the Greeks, to hear this phrase, the, the, the logic of God became flesh, they would have been shocked by this. And here's why. In the Greek worldview, they had this dualism going on. And in their, the Greek mindset was, you know, uh, flesh is bad and spirit's good. You know, the body's bad and spiritual matters are, are, are good. And that was the Greek mindset. That was not, that's not the mindset of the Bible, you know, because God created this material world and you know sometimes you know, you know in American Christians we kind of carry the Greek dualism into our world and we say well money's bad sex is bad the body's bad that's not true God created the material world he created your body and at creation God called it good and all that was good became corrupted when sin entered the world you see, the root of sin is idolatry. When we prefer the creation over the creator, when we prefer the gift over the giver. And so the word flesh has to do with that which is corrupted and weak. And John's point is that God entered this weakness. God entered the corruption. The word became flesh in the world and that means that you know when Christ came he came in a real physical body a body that that you know, grew fatigued 
I'm thinking about parents in our church family who are in the, the intensive, demanding child-rearing years, and, you know, maybe last night or the night before, you, you know, you got about two and a half hours of sleep because your precious child was up all night, and, and you still got to go to work the next day, and it's exhausting. Christ understands that. Christ grew fatigued. Christ felt weak. He ached physically, and not just physically, emotionally. When the Word became flesh, Jesus felt what we feel. And we read that in the Gospels. We read that, that Jesus felt the emotions. Like one time he marveled at the faith of a Roman centurion. And another time he grew angry at the lack of faith of a religious leader. And elsewhere, he says, his soul became sorrowful even to death. Hebrews 5, 7 says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So, so the Word became flesh and felt, felt the flesh physically and felt human emotions because he, he lived in a world of relationships with people, with his father and mother, with his brothers and sisters, with disciples and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman soldiers and the lepers and the prostitutes. And it was in these relationships that he lived and he felt pain and he experienced poverty and he heard profanity and he saw squalor and he met brutality. He did not exist in a sanitized bubble. He became flesh in a crowded, busy, harassed, stressed, and molested world. What I'm trying to say is that when the Word became flesh, the Word became vulnerable. And at some point to be human is to risk getting hurt. And you can't get hurt without first being vulnerable. Vulnerability is the price of love. Friday night at Celebrate Recovery, uh, Gary Wackerlin was teaching about vulnerability, and he quoted from uh, research sociologist Brene Brown, who said as such, there is no intimacy without vulnerability. She wrote, when we spend our lives waiting until we're perfect or bulletproof before we walk into the arena. Just stop right there. How many of us feel like that our lives have to be together and perfect and bulletproof before you walk through those church doors? Oh my goodness. You know, when we carry that, we ultimately sacrifice relationships and opportunities that may not be recoverable. We squander our precious time and we turn our backs on our gifts, those unique contributions that only we can make. Perfect and bulletproof are seductive, but they don't exist in the human experience. If you are feeling imperfect here today, you have come to the right church because our church is a church of imperfect people and their pastor is imperfect too. And Jesus entered this world and he became flesh which means he became vulnerable, which means he became killable. 
Hebrews 2.14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And Hebrews 4.15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that's a beautiful word. Dwelt among us. Literally, it, it is, and the Word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. Tabernacled among us. It's a word that takes us back to the Old Testament. Tabernacle which traveled with God's people throughout their experience in the desert wilderness before entering the land of promise. The tabernacle was a sort of precursor to the temple. God tented among us. Now, tent to 21st century Americans means weekend camping, at least to this American. Tent to Israel means doing life together. It means life in the same neighborhood. And in Scripture, the tabernacle of God was always in the center. Israel set up their tents around the main tent. And so God's moving into the neighborhood. God wants to dwell with His people. Exodus 25, 8, I will dwell among them. So God's tent, God's tabernacle, was a sign of his presence. And Christmas says that the sign has become flesh. The sign is skin, not canvas. God is making his home among us in Christ. God is with us in Christ. Jesus is God's address on earth. And at Christmas, God condescends so that we can comprehend. Now, I didn't say condescension. That smacks of arrogance. To condescend is to stoop. It speaks of humility. And at Christmas, God condescends so that we can comprehend. God comes down so that we can come too. Don't you see? Christianity is, we don't make ourselves strong and then work our way up to a strong God. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the God who is strong, makes himself weak in order to rescue the weak so that in him we might become strong. So, you know, you don't meet God halfway. You can't meet God halfway. Christ comes to us all the way. And because of this, glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Now, 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 glory, 
We often think of glory as something that glows in the dark. But literally, the word glory means weight, density, thickness. So the glory of God is the weightiness of God, the density of God. And glory is therefore mysterious. Glory appears as a babe, becomes a babe. Glory performs signs and wonders. Glory taught as no one had ever taught. Glory was arrested. Glory was unjustly accused. Glory was sentenced to death. Glory was executed on a Roman cross. And glory was buried in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, glory got up. Glory rose from the dead. Glory ascended on high. Glory sent His Holy Spirit to tabernacle among His people. Glory has given gifts to the church, to His people, to us, so that His church might tabernacle among the world, so that the world might see this tabernacle, God's church, and come to the conclusion that God is in fact present. And so glory happens. Glory happens when a mother of a murdered son says to the killer in open court, I forgive you. Glory happens when a believer comes alongside a mourner and says, I want to comfort you. Glory happens when a church says to those struggling with sin, I want to help you. Glory occurs when we say to the under-resourced, let us feed you. Glory is what happens when one believer says to another believer right out there in the cafe area, let me carry your burden. Glory happens on every missions trip. Let us serve, no strings attached. Glory abounds in grace. Verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. We have received so much grace that we just can't consume it all ourselves. And so it just makes sense. We should share it. And and the more grace we share, the more we all have. Glory is grace with skin on. Maybe those film writers have read their Bibles. But there is a difference, you know, between American Westerns and the ancient gospel. Old Denzel, he came into that town all armored up. But when Jesus came to our world from out of town, he wasn't wearing any weapons at all. He did not armor up. He... He rode a colt, not a war horse. He came as a prince of peace, not the commander of Rome's legions. What kind of a religion is this? A preacher once recounted uh, in a sermon an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. 
And the neighbor says to the Christian, ah, I hear you're religious. Great, great. Religion's a good thing. Um, good thing. Well, well, where is your temple anyway? And the Christian says, well, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. No temple? Yeah, but, but where do your priests do work and do their ritual? Well, we don't have priests because Jesus is our priest. Well, well, yeah, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? Well, we don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. And the pagan neighbor sputters, well, what kind of a religion is this? And the answer is it's no kind of religion at all. Christianity is not some brilliantly concocted human religion that tries to pacify an angry God. Christianity is God himself at work in the world, repairing the consequences of our brokenness and sin, and then bringing us back to himself through his son, through his son. Look, if you will, to the very end of John chapter 1. In verses 43 to 51, there's a section that describes Jesus calling two of his disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel in verse 49 says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In verse 50, Jesus told Nathaniel, well, you're going to see greater things than these. And then he said this, Jesus said this to Nathaniel, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that's taken from Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, 12. When Jacob had this dream of angels ascending and descending on a ladder or a flight of steps. And we used to sing that in Sunday school. You know, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. You know. A ladder is the gateway to God's realm. Well, in John chapter 1, Jesus spoke of angels ascending and descending, but there's no ladder. Just Jesus, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the flight of steps. Jesus is the gateway to the realm of God. To know Jesus is to know God, which is why the Apostle John says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, speaking of Jesus, who is at the Father's side, or more literally, in the Father's bosom, the only God, he has made him known. To know Jesus is to know God. And that's why John says in verse 14, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace. Not one or the other. And not 50% grace and 50% truth. He's full of both grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. This is our God. Now what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, I'll tell you what we can't do with it. 
What do we do with this Jesus? Well, you can't just like him. You can't. Yeah, I like that Western. Well, you okay, but you can't say that about Jesus. Not with those close claims. John says you must give your life to him. You must trust him. You must believe him. And John says, this is why I've written. I've written this so that you might believe and have life in Christ. And why should I believe what John says? Because John gives us, in his gospel, witnesses. John says that his gospel is corroborated by a minimum of two witnesses. He gives the first witness in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 15, John bore witness about him. He's talking about John the Baptist. And then, all the way over in the last chapter of John's gospel, John the apostle himself gives a witness. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. John 1, John the Baptist. John 21, John the apostle. Bookends. From cover to cover, witnesses corroborate the truth about Jesus. Jesus is surrounded. He's the tabernacle, and he's surrounded by witnesses. Witnesses. Now, what are you going to do with that? You can't just like it. You need to give your life to him. And you say, well, I, I, I need a watertight argument for the existence of God, Pastor. And you know what? That's just not going to happen. It, it's not. If, if you need a watertight argument for the existence of anything, you're going to be disappointed. Because you, here's why. You can't prove anything is watertight. You can't. You can't because, because to do so, you have to trust your cognitive reasoning skills and your cognitive reasoning skills aren't watertight. Listen, listen, listen. I cannot prove to you right now that I'm not a bison in Oklahoma dreaming that I'm a pastor in Illinois. I mean, if you need a slam dunk watertight argument for the existence of God, you need to reread Philosophy 101. You really do. John does not offer a slam dunk argument. He offers a slam dunk person. Meet him, John says. Behold him. Trust him. John says, I'm a witness to the life of Christ, the Word become flesh. And to witness means to go on record. To witness means to take a stand. To witness is to commit yourself. And John says, I am committing myself. I have seen the glory of God. I've received Him. I believe Him. I'm His child. I've experienced the new birth from the will of the Father. Now, can you say that? Well, that's why this was written. Not merely to inform us, but to transform us. God came to us so that we might belong to him. Jesus himself is the meaning of Christmas. 
Oh, come let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen.